our senior leadership team here. Uh, and he's going to bring a talk to us which continues the series that we're working through, uh, which is Christmas According to Luke. So I wonder if you could warmly welcome Dave as he comes. Sorry, Terry, I thought you'd finished your intro, so I moved a bit early there. Sorry about that. Wow, how on earth do I follow that? What a magnificent... uh, Well, I think, I'm not even sure it's a production anymore. It's like an event, a celebration that we've seen uh, this morning. Yet another brilliant children's production. Some of the questions that the children asked their parents on the long journey reminded me very much of the journeys that my family have. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if they uh, struck a chord with you as well. Uh, I thought the angels were really fantastic. It says that, uh, you know, the, the angels, the heavenly host that no eye could count. And uh, it felt a little bit like that as well this morning, didn't it? They just kept on coming. It was fantastic. We do want to apologize to any shepherds here for the stereotyping that occurred uh, during the production. But hopefully you will uh, see that filed under the drawer of banter and we'll leave it there. Uh, fantastic. And uh, I've got to say that is definitely the, uh, the first time I've ever seen the birth of Christ celebrated with much flossing on, uh, on the stage and the occasional bit of dabbing. And uh, if you don't know what that means, just ask one of your grandchildren and they will explain it to you. There we go. So we do want to say a massive thank you to everyone involved. And also I want to do a big thank you to the parents uh, and those people who've had that CD on in their car for the last month, those who've had those songs playing in the kitchen for the last four weeks, you know who you are, you are brave, and your sacrifice has been worth it, and we thank you. There, there we go. So, over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Luke's account of the birth of Jesus uh, in our church, and uh, everything about what happened around that time. And one problem we can have with the Christmas story, that although the nativity plays are absolutely wonderful, uh, sometimes they can become where we, where we gain our truth from, if you like. The sort of the Christmas card scenes can be the only things that we have opportunity to reflect on. And I think there's a, there's a little danger there, that sometimes it can become a little bit sort of sentimental. We don't want it to start to feel or sound like a fairy tale, but rather to really dig into what actually happened. And of course, we've all got our own family stories or memories we've got of of, uh, really humorous things that have happened in nativity plays. And uh, sometimes that can distract us as well from the story. I'm still very mindful of the moment when my youngest child in the nursery nativity during one of the songs physically fell asleep during the song with his teacher holding him by his neck in order that he didn't fall off the stage because he was asleep. It's difficult for me to consider the Christmas story without thinking of a very sleepy shepherd. So uh, we want to avoid that if we can because away from the carols and the costumes and the, the memories and the fun that we have, which is brilliant, such fantastic fun, but there is also behind it an absolutely remarkable story that is unfolding before us. So over the last couple of weeks, we've tried to look at it through the eyes of the people involved to see uh, how all these events fit into the uh, 
history of the nation of Israel, but also to think about the people themselves. What was it like for Mary especially, but for some of the other people in the story? We've heard about angels bringing messages and and, and we've heard of promises of children by miraculous means. There's, There's nothing that we've heard about that's been ordinary. Everything is completely extraordinary. Joseph and Mary are under this public glare because of their, their relationship status and her pregnancy. And they have to go to a town far away from home. Nothing is straightforward about what we've heard about. But into this chain of events comes a huge dose of the ordinary and the down-to-earth of the humble, of the vulnerable. And that is what we're going to look at today. So if you've missed them, I'd recommend uh, you can go on the website, you can listen back to the last couple of weeks, you can hear the talks as we've uh, read through the whole account that Luke gives of what happened around the time of the birth of Jesus. So you can catch up there. But for now, we're going to be looking in Luke 2 and from verse 1. The birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. So we start here with the census and the detail of the Roman rulers at the time. And you can skip over that if you like sometimes. You just read on to hear about what's happening. But that's actually really important because that means that people in the future could date these events historically. The detail is there because this is intended to be a historical account. And what we hear is that they're called to go back to Joseph's hometown. And that's really important as well, because people then reading this, this account when it was written, even though it was speaking of an event that by then would be a generation in the past, they could go to Joseph's town and meet Joseph's family. So we've got the name of the person, we've got the name of the town, and we've got the period of time in which it happened. Once you've read Luke's account, you could probably go and find the places and speak to people of a, who, who've, who've had the stories themselves passed down into their generation. There's also two other really important uh, things to just bring out about the fact that it was Bethlehem. The first thing would be about 700 years before the prophet Micah has issued a, a, a promise, a, a prophecy over the town of Bethlehem, that from Bethlehem a new ruler would come. If you rewind a bit further, about a thousand years before, King David was born there and there were promises over him that one of his descendants would become the start and would be the start of an eternal kingdom. So 700, a thousand years before, these huge promises have been made over this little place. Bethlehem, a little place with big promises over it. From verse 5. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger 
because there was no guest room available for them. So we've heard the big story and the background, but now Luke brings us to the story itself and their journey. We've heard all about the long journey today, and it would have been well over 100 kilometers. Google Maps tells me if I was to walk this today, it would take me over 30 hours. If you throw in the, 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 the transport means at the time, the, the busy roads, uh, their footwear that they would have had, it would have been a bit of a drama. Add in a heavily pregnant wife, and you've got a very vulnerable situation for Mary and Joseph. All this toing and froing, everyone's going back to their hometowns, everyone's moving across the country. She's heavily pregnant, and they've got a long journey ahead of them. But not only that, in traveling to and then arriving in his hometown, that's going to make her pregnancy and the questions that people would have around it, that's going to make it very public. Very public with people who don't know them and very public with his wider family. So then they finally arrive in Bethlehem and it appears that there is no room for them. That is a really tough place to be. I reckon if I was Joseph... In this uh, account, that's the bit where Joseph would have really lost his temper. If I'm honest, that's the bit where I would have lost it. I've had, I'd have had enough by then. All that effort to get to Bethlehem, and then the guest room is taken. Most houses at that time would have had room for guests, and then it would have had a large communal area downstairs where animals would be kept overnight. An open plan area, which would be the sort of the communal living area, if you like. We've imposed quite a lot onto the story uh, over time to suggest that it was a, a separate stable in a field somewhere. And it was also quite unlikely to have been an inn because Joseph was from Bethlehem and his family lived there and it would be shameful for them to leave a family member without a place to stay for the night. It was their duty to put him up. Another reason why I think it was probably still a house was when Matthew records the wise men travel to visit, it says that they visit the house where they were staying. But the point is that they arrive with their wider family, for Mary, her distant in-laws. The guest room is taken, presumably, because so many other people have traveled through for the census. So they end up in the part of the house where the animals are kept. That's not to say either that there were necessarily animals in there at the time. Uh, so the Christmas card picture with the cow and all that sort of stuff, we don't know that that's true. But what we do know is that there was a manger. There was the place where the animals fed, and that was available. So after a successful birth, that was the best place for the, the baby Jesus to be laid. I think I've got a picture of that there. I found this image on social media uh, with the title, Joseph Reviews Manger on TripAdvisor. So uh, <laughs> I'm not entirely sure that's what was happening, but we do read in our own things sometimes, don't we? But I put that up there because this scene is so ordinary. It's so humble. It's so down to earth. It doesn't need any embellishment of the story to make the point far away from home in the public eye and vulnerable. Now, I've had the privilege of witnessing the birth of two children. And even when it goes to plan, I think it's fair to say that it is all a bit of a drama. 
With our modern medicine and modern facilities, skilled people assisting us, it's still a bit of a drama. I remember the moment they asked me to hold my firstborn child for the first time. And, uh, and I looked down into her eyes and I held her there. And I thought to myself, you know what? My arm really hurts. <laughs> this, this giving birth thing is really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> But I tell you what, though, I'm, I'm really glad that we didn't have to uh, have children in a crowded house in a communal area with the guest room taken, probably in a place where animals at least had been kept with only an animal feeding trough to lay her down. That's not exactly what you would expect for a king. It's not the way you would expect the God of heaven to arrive at all. You wouldn't write that. You wouldn't invent that. God was literally taking onto himself the vulnerability of humanity. In this scene that we're picturing here, God himself, for the first time, is allowing himself to feel cold. For the first time, he's allowing himself to feel hunger. What an astonishing moment in history. God, with all of his power, with all of his glory, with all of his eternal security, his completeness, he's allowing himself to be completely and totally vulnerable. And shortly after this moment, they had to flee to Egypt because there was a threat to their son, so they had to escape. The God of heaven became a refugee, a young family alone, not just in a strange house like this, but later in a strange country. But today we're focusing on their time in that house in Bethlehem, two young adults with their child in a manger, not knowing what the future would hold, but knowing that it was a moment that would change everything. This vulnerable, needy, little child would grow to influence more people and change the lives of more people than any other child in human history. The claims he would make about himself were incredible. What his followers said that he did, what, what they said that they witnessed of him, it's just astonishing even today. Never once did he have any political power or any position, any financial resources. He had no media team. He had no spin doctors. He had no hashtag. He had nothing. He was born into nothing. But what he did have was love, humility, wisdom, and power. How can one child, how can one person have such a radical history-shaping effect? Why 2,000 years later can someone write in a song? The ground began to shake. The stone was rolled away. His perfect love would not be overcome. Now death, where is your sting? Our resurrected king has rendered you defeated. What child is this that 2,000 years later someone can be stirred to write those words in the day? 
These are exactly the kind of things that our Alpha course is going to be exploring. And if you're interested in finding out more, you'd be so welcome to come. And for those of us here this morning with an active faith, this story provokes us more and more every time we consider it. The faithfulness of Joseph and Mary in such difficult circumstances. The humility of Jesus in being willing to come to earth. All that he was prepared to give up to come and rescue us. The excitement, the excitement as people started to find out, the wise men, the shepherds, the news starts to spread. And we're going to be talking about those two groups in first our carol service and then in our Christmas service as we continue to look at the, the biblical account. But for now, the image of this morning is this little child in a manger, born in David's town, born into the bloodline, born into the promises. It's really happening. Whisper it quietly, the hopes and dreams, not just of a family, but of a nation and through them, humanity itself. And yet in the moment, the faithfulness of a family, the Savior has been born. And when the shepherds arrive, their first response is to worship. When the wise men arrive, their first response is to worship. And so when we consider this amazing moment in the whole historical account this morning, the only real response that we can have is to worship too. And so that is what we're going to do. I'd love to invite the band to come forward. And as you're coming forward, I'd love to lead us as we pray together. And then we're going to sing a most beautiful carol that will probably be very familiar to you. But can I encourage you that as we sing it this morning, to not sing it with a sense of sentimentality about the season, but to actually read the words that we're singing and to open up our hearts to God and to bring worship to him for all that he's done. Let's pray together. Lord, I really want to thank you for the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary. I want to thank you for the way they went through difficulty and cared for you. Lord Jesus, it blows us away every time we consider all that you gave up and the humility and the vulnerability in which you came to earth in, so that you could identify with us and with the difficulties and with the vulnerability that we have. But Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that the story doesn't end here. I want to thank you for everything that was to come. And I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are alive and you are just as active here on the, in the world, on the earth today, by your Holy Spirit, as, as you were there. You're, you're, you're present with us, just as you were present then. And so we want to respond to you this morning with love and with worship. Amen. Can we stand together?